Hello, everyone, and welcome to On Location for what is perhaps our most atypical episode up to now because uh, we're really focusing on a film that isn't necessarily known for its locations. And most of the things we've done in the past, there's been some uh, general accolades that have gone towards the locations in that film. You know, we did L.A. Confidential. uh, You know, we did Wayne's World. Our last episode was on Punch Drunk Love over at the Auto Body Shop, a place that people go and visit all the time because of its use in the film. Um, But I can't say really the same for what we're here uh, in Reseda to discuss today. because the film we're we're about to talk about uh, was generally panned by critics and um, has a reputation of having racist uh, overtones and just in general, I guess, being a bad movie. Uh, A.O. Scott in the New York Times uh, called Eddie Murphy's Norbit a raucous and sloppy comedy and said that too many of the gags are lumbering and graceless. Empire Magazine said uh, this stereotype-based comedy from Eddie Murphy in a variety of fat suits is just not enough to make a decent film. Uh, Time Out said, even if you go back decades, body fascism has rarely been so brazen or so unfunny. Horrifying. (laughs) Richard Roper just had a few words. He said, it's offensively bad. Moviefreak.com. I like this one said that this movie is just sad. (laughs) So sad, in fact. (laughs) Wow. So sad, in fact, I can almost guarantee that when word of mouth on this one starts to get around, Murphy will end up losing the Best Supporting Actor Academy Award to either Alan Arkin or Jemon Hansu. Um, Murphy did indeed lose that Oscar for Dreamgirls to Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, I did find one good review, actually, of, of Norbit. Uh, uh, Mick LaSalle, and this almost, I don't know if it's, it's like a parody-like review almost. Uh, Mick LaSalle in the San Francisco Chronicle said, Norbit is a tour de force in which Murphy plays three distinct characters, two of them to the hilt. In fact, the only thing that makes Norbit good rather than great is that the title character is a bit bland. Hmm, okay. Um, Well, regardless of all of that, Eddie Murphy's star power completely obliterated any poor reviews because uh, Norbit was incredibly successful at the box office. It made over $159 million worldwide on an estimated $34 million budget, according to IMDb. Uh, Now, if you haven't seen the 2007 film, it follows uh, mild-mannered Norbit, played by Murphy, who was abandoned as a baby and grew up in the Golden Wonton Restaurant and Orphanage run by Mr. Wong, who, uh, in a turn similar to playing the old man in the barbershop in Coming to America, is played by Murphy as well. Uh, The exterior of the Golden Wonton Restaurant and Orphanage was built on a movie ranch, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but the interior was filmed inside the Great Wall Chinese Restaurant on Sherman Way in Reseda. Uh, if Sherman Way sounds familiar, that's because it's perhaps most famous from its appearance in Boogie Nights. Miss Donuts is right down the street in one direction. In the other direction is the building that housed the Hot Tracks Disco, uh, just a few doors down. Uh, the Great Wall itself opened in 1984 and has been used in a number of films, including I Love You, Man. It's in Curtis Hansen's Lucky You. Uh, it can be seen at the very end of Drive when Ryan Gosling meets up with Albert Brooks. And actually, I was just told by Winnie, the owner, that it was used uh, the very early part of 2020. They filmed an episode for uh, This Is Us in here. So it's been used quite often. Um, the interior, I think, sets it apart from any other Chinese restaurant in Los Angeles. I would say... It's arguably the most filmed Chinese restaurant in L.A. outside of Hop Louie, which is down in Chinatown. 
uh, that was used, uh, that's been used a bunch. I met today's guest, David Lyons, back in 2019 when I was working on an article about the filming locations for Dolomite Is My Name, which also starred Eddie Murphy. Uh, he was the location manager on the film. He won California On Location Award for Location Manager of the Year for an independent feature. Now, you might think, why didn't I do an episode with David on the locations from Dolomite Is My Name? It seems like the natural choice. Uh, well, I didn't because I did an article with David about about the movie, and I didn't really want to rehash it. And, you know, David and I have talked a lot over the last couple of years, and I really wanted to get him on the show. And I asked him to pick a film that he'd want to talk about. I'm just going to jump in by welcoming David, who worked as an assistant location manager on Norbit. And I'm just going to let him answer why he picked Norbit of all of the things that he's worked on. So, David, welcome. And... uh, Tell me, why are we here today at the Great Wall talking about about Norbit? Thank you, first of all, for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, But when I think about my film history and the thing, like I've worked with Terrence Malick and Vim Vendors and Into the Wild, Mission Impossible 3, like all these, the TV show community, I've done, I have like a decent resume, but nothing makes me laugh harder than telling people that I worked on Norbit. It's such, it's such a terrible film on so many levels. And I brought my, fr- like, I have never saved location signs from any project I've worked on. But as you saw, I have a framed Norbit location sign sitting behind you. And that has a very special place uh, in my home, right by the front door. Look at it whenever I come and go. It just, uh, it just makes me so happy. And it's such, one of my favorite things is to take the stupidest things so seriously. <laughs> And as far as my resume goes, this is definitely the stupidest thing. <laughs> and I can't wait to talk about it. Well, I was going to yeah, I was gonna ask you about the location sign from Norbit. So if, what we're talking about, if you're not sure what we're discussing, it's the yellow sign that you see around any time anybody's filming, not just in L.A., but anywhere. It's the yellow sign with the arrow on it. Uh, usually, well, more recently, things have been a little more coded. What's interesting about this is it just says Norbit on it. I mean, I guess that's a code. No, I'm sure, no, I don't know if anybody knew what Norbit meant no. when you guys were filming. I mean, now it's always some kind of coded thing, so nobody yeah, shows like, up at the location right. trying to find the stars of the show or something. Right, you like know? This Is Us is T-I-U, or Sons of Anarchy was S-O-A. You know, a lot of, lot of acronyms. Or, um, and then some shows just has a full-on fake name. Right, right, right. But Norbit just went went with it. Yep. Uh, is it? I mean, is it generally is it typical to keep one of these signs? Uh, it, or it is not. What What happens to these signs when the shows are? They just get tossed, or what? It yeah, goes on? usually uh, for TV shows, they'll go into storage and then get reused if there's another season. They'll get thrown away. Crew members will grab them. I mean, I guess some people like to keep them. I have Norbit, and I I do have one from Dolomite is my name, but uh, that one didn't even have a didn't have words on it. It was just an image of a red devil, which is oh. what, what they used to stamp, well, what Rudy cool. Ray Moore used to stamp. Is. That's a great code. Yeah, I, I tend to be a little more clever with mine. I worked on a show called Eagle Heart, and that one had just a picture of an eagle with a heart around it. But no, Norbit, just why not? Who generally, if there's like a, a code on those signs... Mm-hmm. Who generally comes up with that? Is that the locations department? Does it actually have to get like approved like it through the whole through the production? Absolutely does. Everything has to be approved up to the studio level. So I usually go to the unit production manager or the producers and say, "Hey, I'm making signs. Does anybody have any big ideas?" I'll check in with the director, and if they don't care, then I'm allowed to go wild. Could I ask you how much it costs to frame that Norbit sign? Almost a thousand dollars. Wow. How much do those signs cost? About 12 bucks a piece. Is there like one place that you guys go to that makes those signs? There's, there's two. Uh, one is, uh, and they're both barricade places. So when you see oh. like all the cones and the barricades set up when we're shutting down streets, they also have printing houses in there. And you can, they don't have to be yellow and black. I tend to do different colors when I can. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the standard. That's the industry standard is the yellow sign with the black writing and an arrow. Now, as I mentioned just previously, I mean, some might say there's really nothing particularly noteworthy about locations from Norbit. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, not, uh, and, uh, 
it's not exactly LA Confidential. You know, I know a good deal of it was shot on some sound stages. Mm-hmm. You shot at Warner Brothers. You mm-hmm. shot on, uni- on the Universal backlot as yeah. well. Do you ag- agree with that? Or is there is there actually something about any of the practical locations from Norbit that is noteworthy? Or is it really just no? Well, the the difficulty in scouting, we needed a road and it had to have a Chinese restaurant next to it. And it had to be in the middle of nowhere, and that just doesn't exist in L.A. So we go out to Paramount Ranch, find a section of road, and we built the exterior of the orphanage. And it was just out of necessity. We needed an open area next to a road. Uh, the water park, not a lot of inventory for that, so we ended up at Raging Waters. As far as additional locations, yeah, Norbit's house was at... You know, one really good location we had in that was the family's office where they worked, and that was a gravel pit. I don't know what they made there, but that was out in off of a uh, like Sand Canyon mm-hmm. area. Um, but yeah, other than that, the locations are pretty standard. There, there's not a lot of I, I'm hesitant to say it, but there's not a lot of inspiration in these locations. Now you've worked with Eddie Murphy a couple times, four, um, four times, four times. So what are other than this and and Dolomite? What were the other two? There was one called A Thousand Words. Okay which uh, he only could speak a thousand words before all these leaves fell off of a tree. Real think piece. Yeah, I remember the movie. Yeah, in fact, one of my favorite reviews of that, uh, making a movie where Eddie Murphy can't speak, is like putting leg irons on Fred Astaire. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Uh, And then there was one... That's why these critics get paid the big bucks sometimes. That's that's pretty good, actually. (laughs) Uh, And there was one that was originally called Nowhere Land, but then somebody realized that Paul McCartney owned the word Nowhere Land and he wasn't selling. And it ended up being called Imagine That. And that's where his daughter can predict stock futures with her magic baby blanket. My God, I don't even remember that. I don't even remember that movie. Since you've worked on a few of his mm-hmm. movie, movies, I mean, how many stars... This is kind of off the locations topic a little bit, but I mean, how many stars can you think of that can appear in a film that can make so much money while at the same time just being completely re- destroyed by critics, you know? I feel like Tyler Perry has that power. There aren't many. Why do you think Norbit was so poorly received? By critics, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's just not good. I mean, I I hate to take anything away from it. Uh, Eddie wrote it with his brother, uh, Charlie, who's now deceased. And it was a passion project for them. And when they were creating it, they thought they were making a new Blazing Saddles. So maybe that speaks to why, because there's, there's some racist humor in Blazing Saddles that, yeah. I mean, that couldn't be made today. But yeah, in 1977, it's a lot different from 30 years later, or 74, I think, Blazing Saddles came out. It was just so offensive towards women, towards ample people, towards uh, the Chinese. They're like, just, there's so, and it just, at least Blazing Saddles was done with a little bit of cleverness behind it. And this lacked cleverness. It was hit you over the head type humor, and it just fell flat. But like you said, it made a lot of money. And it continued this tradition of Eddie Murphy playing multiple characters, getting dressed up in you know the the fat suits mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Why do you think he gravitates towards that that sort of those types of characters where he and he can play all these multiple yeah. things? Well, I think it's a couple reasons. The big one is Eddie Murphy has been one of the most recognizable people on the planet since he was 20 years old. And you think about the people that are, like, for a while it was Muhammad Ali, for a while it was Michael Jackson, but Eddie Murphy is more well-known than the Western image of Jesus. And when he goes to Egypt with his family to see the pyramids, all of a sudden it's about thousands of Egyptians seeing Eddie Murphy. He can't go to Disneyland, he can't go to the store. It's been impossible for him since he was at that young age. And when we were filming the exterior of this uh, restaurant out of Paramount Ranch, it flooded uh, right before we shot. It rained and the water levels kind of came up. And as the water receded, there were tadpoles forming in these ponds. And it's a protected area. You're not supposed to change the environment. We weren't allowed to. We just had to let these tadpoles dry up and die. That was a, it's a, I think it's a national park or a national forest over there. So the rangers are like, don't touch anything. There's this one weird um, albino looking guy, like white, long, like an Edgar Winters kind of look. And I saw him scooping up tadpoles. And it was my job to go over and tell him, hey, if the rangers see you doing that, they're going to they're gonna yell at us. 
And I started talking to him, and it turned out it was Rick Baker, the um, famous makeup artist. And I never knew what he looked like, but I certainly knew his name. Yeah. I think the guy has an Academy Award for American Werewolf in London, if I'm not mistaken. I think for uh, Ed Wood also. Yeah, his, his resume is... Like, there's only one other person like him, and it's Stan Winston. Right. But we started talking, and he was showing me some of the fat suits, and um, they really are quite amazing. Like, right up looking at them, they, they look like human flesh, even with little hair, arm hair coming out. And he told me when he first made the suit, he took it over to Eddie's house, and Eddie put it on and started kind of clowning around in it. And then Eddie said, hey, let's go to the park. And Eddie went to the park and just started skipping around and interacting with people because it's the first time he was anonymous since he was 19, 20 years old. And when we were on the back lot at Universal, you know, they have the the carts, the tour carts that come around. He was getting a ride back to his, well, his, his own base camp. He has several, not his trailer, but his trailers. And he just got out and walked right up to this cart full of people as Rasputia and just did 10 minutes of improv, of making fun of everybody, of laughing. He was cracking people up, making them laugh. And the people on the cart loved it, but they had no idea what they were seeing. And then he went inside his base camp and closed the the gates, and that was it. And the people were just looking at me like, what the hell happened? And I said, ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Murphy. (laughs) And everybody gasped. And then they started taking pictures of me like, oh, this is the guy that said Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Um, But I could really see in that moment that he... The one thing he doesn't have is anonymity. Yeah. And when he puts those suits on, he has it again. And I think he likes that. Today we're in the Great Wall. Uh, like I said, on Sherman Way. We are in Reseda in the San Fernando Valley. I'm curious why you think the Great Wall is an attractive location. Well, it's certainly... I, I don't even know if I would call it unique. Because I've seen this restaurant in other towns. You know what? Let me, let me get the production designer on the phone and see if I can get through to him uh clay griffith was the uh production designer on this movie uh this was the first movie i did with clay uh he also did a thousand words and dolomite is my name and uh john panzarella who was the location manager on this and la confidential is been with clay for years and years they've done multiple projects together including lucky you which i think yeah the curtis curtis hansen film and of course john worked did la confidential he did so okay let me uh That'd be awesome to get Clay on the phone. Yeah, let me see if I can get him here. Hello? Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Is I, it David? Yes, it is. I <laughs> am sitting in the Great Wall restaurant with Jared and my, well, my girlfriend Dana's here too. But uh, we're sitting here and we're talking about this place. And I, I kind of wanted to reach out to you. So I know you, you filmed this on Lucky You. What is it about this place that attracted you? And did you bring it up for Norbit? I think I did, and I'll tell you what attracted me about it. It's, it is the quintessential Chinese restaurant. It was one of those places you walked into, and there was nothing that you wanted to change about it. Yeah. It's perfect in every way. And for Lucky You, which it's funny, Lucky You was a complete drama, and Norbit was the opposite effect of being Blazing Saddles. (laughs) For some reason, (laughs) when they were looking at the Chinese restaurant, and, you know, we built the outside of it, the the orphanage and all that Mm -hmm. stuff, we were like, what's the interior going to look like? I thought, you know what? We shot this place in Lucky You that was cavernous. It's a huge place. Yeah, it's massive. And it's so, from the outside, you wouldn't know the inside is so amazing looking. In Norbit, it's actually the most dynamic I've actually seen the restaurant, um, in ter- you know, in terms of the lighting and some of the, ang- the angles and, and all that. And I'm wondering um, what ideas you had for coming in here. I mean, it doesn't just look like you walked into a, you know, just regular Chinese restaurant just in a strip center. Well, the funny thing is, like on Lucky You, we, we used it because it was sort of um, this, this big space that was oppressive and... You know, it could, could have been anywhere in Las Vegas. Uh, Norbit, the idea was that we were, we were shooting a comic book story, you know, a complete fable. So we went over the top, and the, the DP, Clark Mathis, uh, used all the cove uh, lighting around and put the bright green on it and, and made it come to life in a different way, like completely opposite of what we did on Lucky You. Uh, and a location like that is amazing. Because if you can make it for a comedy or a drama, you're doing all right. Yeah. Also, ample parking. 
And plenty of ample parking. Yeah, I know that's what you look for when you're uh, selecting locations. Oh, I'm always doing that. Yeah. Well, that um, that actually that totally makes sense. I was because I was going to ask you about the general look of the movie. So that makes sense. That comic book look. Yeah, we were bright, primary colors, a uh, little way more over the top than we we thought we should be. But that was the point of saying that Norbit. It's such a, a strange comedy that you wanted to make sure people knew that it wasn't real. Well, and and speaking of that, the last thing I want to ask you before we let you go, because I know you've got a busy schedule on location, what is your general feeling of this film? You know what? When I when I my uh, when I when I first read the script, um, I just kept laughing. <laughs> Sorry, but it was just one of the funny. I haven't laughed like that in a while and the first thing i thought of was mel brooks and blazing saddles young frankenstein like humor that is just on the edge of being ludicrous and like not appropriate and when i met brian robbins to work on it he said we got a script that's gonna offend everybody and i just i think we should just do it (laughs) and i loved it love that idea well, that's great. We're filmmakers. <laughs> we push it to the edge. Yeah. And it's cool because the church that you used on the Warner Brothers lot, mm-hmm. the interior was used in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. Which is cool, too. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so. Uh, it's also where the Frog Brothers fill up their canteen in the Lost Boys. That's right. That's right. That's cool. Oh, my God, nerds. <laughs> I know. I know. Total. Oh, I'm, I know. In, I'm in we, heaven. You know, we actually built that interior on stage. We did shoot part of it at Warner Brothers. Yeah. But, um, you know, the first, uh, when the critics came out, I mean, the movie made, did very well financially, but right. critically, we got slammed. Yeah. Yeah, we went through... like, it looks like the art director shot it on the back lot of Warner Brothers. It's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> we did, except for a few things. <laughs> right, right. And we actually had to dismantle the Gilmore Girls set. Oh, wow. To, yeah. uh, oh, that's to right. Do that. I remember that. And do you remember we picked all the leaves off the tree? Or we, no, put, we added, we added leaves, leaves to, the, to the, tree. the tree. That's what it was. Let me ask you both this, both of you, before I let you go, Clay. So the film, and I guess you kind of have to look closely, but apparently the film takes place in Tennessee. There are The post office says Boiling Springs, Tennessee. The license plates on the cars say Tennessee. Is there anything in the film that actually looks like Tennessee? Uh, that's a funny question. Um, part of my family's from Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. So, that's uh, what I was going to ask. Was that you're doing, or was that scripted? A little bit of me. Yeah, <laughs> just being funny. Yeah, I, there's a pharmacy, and I called it George's Pharmacy because that was my grandfather's pharmacy in Rockwood, Tennessee. Oh, that's hysterical. That's so funny. I just sort of like went with that line of reasoning. It's like let's make it Rockwood. I've been there. I know what it looks like. Small town. Clay, thanks a lot for joining us here uh, via phone at the Great Wall. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, I know you're busy. My so thanks again, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully, I can have you on in person one of these days. Oh, that'd be great. All right, bye-bye. bye bye. Oh, well, nice that, that was awesome. Yeah, I'm glad it picked up. <laughs> that was super cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. When you started saying that Tennessee thing, I started thinking, I'll bet that was Clay. So the funny thing about that too, and this is again, you kind of have to stop the film and kind of freeze frame things like I was doing going through is that, you know, you mentioned Raging Waters mm-hmm. when Respucia goes in before she goes through the turnstile, there's the ticket taker guy mm-hmm. and his hat says Raging Waters, San yeah. Dimas, California, <laughs> right? But, it it's, but, but they're all in Tennessee, you know, yeah. I mean? apparently, you know, but uh, I would, I don't remember the contract exactly, but I would imagine there was something about using Raging Waters that we had to call it Raging Waters yeah. or like they wanted the promotional I mean, is there is there ever a situation where a location wants you to use their name and you can like get it a little cheaper if they'll if you're willing to promote what the place actually is? It can happen. It doesn't happen as much as it used to. And frankly, it's because reality television has kind of ruined that where they'll come and say, hey, we'll feature your place on our show. And then nobody ever watches the, you know, you're not the man I married or whatever the, the horrible reality show is. And it just doesn't, um, doesn't work as well as it once did. Right. But, you know, if you're, if you're making a franchise movie, if you're making part three of something, and it's like, like, say, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but like Beverly Hills Cop 3, and like, hey, we're going to make this movie. We know it's going to be a hit. Will you let us use your name? But in the grand scheme of things, I feel like, that it was probably maybe $10,000 a day to shut down Raging Waters on an off day. 
And for a $34 million movie, that's not, not going to break the bank for a location. I think this one probably cost more than that. Was it during their season? It was, uh, it was like on a Monday, and it would have been... It was cold. It might have been before they opened for the summer. Because I remember we had all the background in uh, swimsuits, and everybody was freezing. And the look of it was changed specific, I feel like, to the movie. There was all of a sudden this like tiki theme there, uh, which I yeah. don't believe is the actual look of Raging it's, Waters. It's not. Uh, that was what they decided to do, what they decided to put together. And what was interesting, we were originally going to shoot that scene at the gates of the L.A. Zoo, but the L.A. Zoo couldn't make it work. So we ended up just shooting. We built that ticket stand there. What happened with the L.A. Zoo? They just, they couldn't, they wouldn't close or they couldn't close or... So because it's L.A. County, you have a lot of levels to go through. You get, you get a lot of no's before you get a yes, yeah. and we just never got to that yes. We kind of uh, bonded, I feel like, in a sense, when we were doing the Dolomite article, yeah. because not only did we both kind of discover the Dolomite, Rudy Ray Moore thing as teenagers, just kind of mm. browsing the the video store rental shelves, um, but we, we generally ha- both have an interest in filming locations as a fan. Yes, you know, uh, very And much. I think that's, that's great. Um, yeah, anyone that's ridden in a car with me is like, yeah. we get it, Dave. <laughs> is it typical for a location professional to also just be a fan of locations as they appear in other movies? I have not met another location manager that gets as excited about it as I do. We'll sit around and discuss things, but like you mentioned, this is us filming here. The location manager on that's a good friend of mine. We both worked together on a couple Eddie Murphy movies, but I was excited about being on a back lot at Paramount. I was like, dude, this is, this is where they shot Breakfast at Tiffany's. He's like, oh, okay. Come on, man. <laughs> right. Speaking of uh, racist movies. Mickey Rooney, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... That is problematic. You know, it was it was very funny. We um, went back and watched Norbit for this because I wanted it fresh in my mind, and I probably hadn't seen it since two thousand seven. Boy, it's a tough watch. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really it's really something. I'm so glad Clay said Blazing Saddles because he told me that when we were making it, and he's like, "Yeah, everybody thinks this is the next Blazing Saddles." If they made this movie in the seventies, would we be talking about the same? controversy over this movie do you think or is it just that mel brooks and you know richard pryor writing blazing saddles have a maybe more elevated sensibility with this type of thing i think it was definitely a more elevated sensibility eddie murphy and charlie murphy um i'm trying to think of how to say this uh they they don't have the i mean eddie murphy is is a genius no one's questioning that but when it comes to writing scripts it's not mel brooks and richard pryor i i think there is uh, an inherent um, intellect to Mel Brooks' scripts that comes through, and that intellect does not come across in Norbit. You're you're not from L.A. You moved out to L.A. from from where? I grew up in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. When you first came to L.A., did you immediately start going to look for locations? I absolutely did. Um, I went and found. The Dolomite locations. Um, I spent a lot of time at Forest Lawn, like celebrity hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is kind of an interesting story. When I, I was offered the pilot for the TV show Community, but I didn't want to do it because I think I, don't know, I was doing like a Nancy Myers movie at the time, and I didn't want to leave just to do a pilot. And the showrunner uh, on that is a guy named Dan Harmon, and he's an old friend of mine. And we were hanging out, and he asked me what I'd gotten up to that day. And I said, well, I was kind of bored, so I watched Double Indemnity, and then I went out and found all the existing locations for it. And he said, will you please be my location manager for this series? Because his location manager that day had said, Dan had asked him, how do, how do you like your job? Because he knew it was the same job I do. And the guy said, yeah, it's fine, but honestly, I'd rather be surfing. And at that point, Dan was like, all right, I'm taking, taking Dave Lyons out and seeing what he's available to. But yeah, because that's what I would do in my free time, is I'd go and find a location. And I've just always done that. Even before I knew I wanted to get into locations, that was, that was a free thing I could do in Los Angeles when I was a broke production assistant, saving up my money to try to eat. Before you moved to L.A., like, I don't know, you know how much traveling or whatnot, what you may have done, but did you ever go and look for other, lo- when you were somewhere else, not just L.A., did you ever go seek out locations before coming here? I knew of some things that had shot in Kalamazoo. And I sought those out, like the baseball, one of the baseball stadiums from a league of their own. Oh, filmed awesome. In, filmed in Kalamazoo. 
Um, I did live in Indianapolis for a while, and um, I was actually uh, in the background in Hoosiers because they shot at my high school gym, or my junior high gym. And uh, Eight Men Out shot at our local ball field. So I was very aware of locations, but didn't really go driving to find them. At what point did you know that there was actually like this job you know, that there was somebody who, who actually went, especially because when you look at older films, I would say mm-hmm. pre-1980s, you don't generally see a location manager credit mm-hmm. on movies. Once in a while you might, even though there actually was a location person. So at what point did you become aware you knew, oh, there's this job that actually goes out and finds these things? The first time I really understood it, I was a production assistant on a TV show called Without a Trace. And, you know, I just stand at the end of a street and yell rolling and cut and tell people, hey, you can't walk there. Real exciting stuff. But I was drawn to the location team. And I was just always asking them questions and bugging them about it. And then shortly after that, um, I became the sort of the in-house PA for everything that Vim Vendors did. And I spent time in an RV with him driving across the West scouting for a movie called Don't Come Knocking, which is a beautiful location movie. And we realized our location manager couldn't do the pre-scouting and be on set at the same time. So they just said, well, Dave knows the locations. Why don't we, uh, why don't we give it to him? And I became the assistant location manager. And then when I got back to L.A., I returned to PAing and I got on Mission Impossible 3 and I went to the location department. I said, you guys need any help? And they said, absolutely. And it all, it all started from there. I do feel I was lucky to kind of find this because I'm lucky enough to do for a living what my hobby would have been had I not found this line of work. Because I was already out looking for locations. Now they pay me to do it. It's great. And then you eventually got hooked up with John Panzarella, who was yes. a guest on one of my previous episodes. Yes. And, you know, I've interviewed John a number of mm-hmm. times for articles. And you worked on then a few things with him. So how did mm-hmm. you get hooked up with John, who, you know, is, I mean, without a doubt, he's one of the most well-respected location yeah. professionals in the industry, hands yeah. down. Very dear friend and very much my mentor. Uh, actually, it was his house that I went over to to rewatch Norbit. We were looking at each other like, good lord. Um, but there is a location manager named Michael Chicky, who's pretty well known. We're kind of the same level of, we do like work on the same size projects, I think that's fair to say. And he was John's assistant. And John offered him a job on the movie, the Oliver Stone movie, World Trade Center. And Chicky couldn't do it, so he said, well, here, there's this Dave Lyons kid. Why don't, you, why don't you do that? And then after working with John for a couple of weeks, he called up Chicky and said, thank you so much for introducing me to Dave Lyons, because now I never have to hire you again. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, do I love bringing that up to him. Uh, yeah, and then John and I did World Trade Center. We did Norbit. We did Charlie Wilson's War. We did those other two Eddie Murphy movies together, and we did Nancy Meyers' It's Complicated. And we just back to back to back. Like, we would literally come into Paramount on a Saturday to pack up our office and move it to the other side of the lot to start the new movie. That's just constant work. And we're still very good friends. We hang out, and he likes The Grateful Dead a little more than me. But uh, <laughs> other than that, we, we're very, very close. For you as a fan of locations, hmm? what is it about visiting a classic movie location that gets you excited? It's, you know? it's just the history of it. Like You're walking where Fred McMurray was walking, uh, throwing a body off the train. Um, you know, like When we were scouting for Dolomite, I found this low area that I, up by Bronson Caves that I, you know, the land doesn't change that much. I'm like, guys, this is... This is the puddle from Dolomite, yeah, too. Yeah. And everyone's looking at me like, oh, there goes Dave again, talking about <laughs> puddles from Dolomite, too. <laughs> but it made it in the movie. so no, no, that's amazing. And I mean, the film, I think, uh, it, it, I think it came out probably even better because you were there. I mean, you found you had the original location. Some yeah. of them already in your back pocket. Yeah. And some of them you spent hours and hours and yeah. hours trying to find for this for mm-hmm. this production. Pretty and amazing. Yeah, it was like that became my passion to like find, like I couldn't find the jail scene and then figured out it was a, a middle school and the name had changed. And well, It's crazy. That's what I do for my articles, man. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm sitting and even when I think... I'm never going to find, like, I get to that point where I'm like, I'm never going to find it. All of a sudden, 
at the last minute something comes up. Yeah. And I'm probably the most excited person in the world at that point. My wife is like, what are you crazy? You know, yeah. probably like you're sitting here at your computer for hours looking at Google Maps, you know, and, and you look like you're having a party now all of a sudden once you, you're like celebrating, you know. Well, I, you know, we're, we're kind of getting into this post-COVID time. But the day I got my first vaccination, I was on the east side. Yeah. And that's why I was like, I'm going to go find miracles from Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. Right. And then I, I, and you were the person I texted, like, hey, do an article about this. And then you did. I did. <laughs> well, it was too, it was too good to pass out, yeah. man. I mean, and then as I started getting back into Breaking 2, I was like, you know, there's some great locations in this, you know, whatever, you know, its reputation is, you know, aside kind of being the sort of neon fringed goofiness of whatever it is. But, you know, uh, there's some great locations mm-hmm. in it. And actually, the house that they use that's uh, up on the hill mm-hmm. uh, where Turbo and Ozone supposedly live in the back shack yeah. there. I mean, that same house is in uh, Boulevard Nights, you know? So it's like, it's not just Breakin' 2 that said, yeah, this is a cool location. Yeah. I mean, it's got some pretty hands-down wonderful spots in it. Yeah, you know? it's a so, beautiful part of town. It's yeah. got a great history, too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, you said was your so your first just actual managing job was community. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what some of the differences are between an assistant location manager and then once you actually become the manager? Like, where's the line and, like, what are the responsibility differences? Basically, like, I was an assistant location manager on this movie, and this was one of my locations. So it had already been selected by the time I got on. And John said, okay, this is the location. You need to know the neighbors. You need to find parking, set up base camp, all that kind of thing. So I spent probably two weeks around here just getting to know everyone and finding a church down the street where we could park 150 cars or where we could feed everybody and then sit here when they film and kind of protect the place and make sure everything goes smoothly and no you know some grip isn't running cable through a wall or you know uh, I, in fact I remember here at Sound had a problem with the fish tank and I don't know if they still have them but uh, they had these massive koi that you just can't replace there are thousands of dollars to replace you know a a koi like that and he said we need to unplug that that tank i was like all right give me your keys give me your car keys because i want to make sure that gets plugged back in and when it does i'll give you your keys back because we could kill those fish and get a sixty thousand dollar bill on the way out of here wow Uh, but then as a manager i'll have several people at different locations doing that for me you know this film honestly it it feels like, especially today, it could have been shot in Atlanta. It could have mm-hmm. been shot in New Orleans. I mean, but it was shot in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as you know, was this movie always going to be shot in L.A.? It was going to be shot in L.A. because Eddie does not like to travel. And he's, he's got a bunch of kids. He's a family man. And he wants to be near his kids. So they recently made the sequel to Coming to America. And they shot that in Atlanta. And they realized that with tax incentives, like if they could come up with another 20 million that they would save by going to Atlanta, they could stay here. And the studios just said, no, sorry, Eddie, you're getting on a plane. But yeah, that's, that's his thing. He's got his family here and the movie could have been shot anywhere. And Eddie said, no, I want to stay home. You shot, you know, again, on Midwest Street uh, on the Warner Brothers back lot. You used, I think it's called Elm Street at Universal mm-hmm. where Norbit's house is. I mean, do you think they come across as back? Well, Clay even talked about there was a mm-hmm. review that was like, it looks like you shot on the Warner Brothers backlot. Yeah. I mean, do you think it, it genuinely comes across as that in the movie? Like, oh, this looks like this looks like a studio backlot. I could tell, even if I didn't do the job that I do, I very much think I would have been able to pick that out as a backlot. Yeah. But that was the look they wanted. They right. wanted, like Clay said, comic book and cartoonish. And yeah. that's what you get. The one thing that's interesting about the Great Wall and the exterior that was built in the Paramount Ranch mm-hmm. is that every time I see it, I always <laughs> feel like this interior would never fit inside that Mm-mm. set. Like, Mm-mm. it, that house looks so tiny. Yeah. And it's different from, you know, and look, filmmakers have done that throughout the history of cinema. I mean, probably one of the, the most well-known examples is Psycho, right? It's like you have the house up on the hill, and then the interior is built on a stage. When you walk up to the front of that house, 
at that door on the Universal back lot, you go, yeah, okay, this thing's tiny. No way does that fit in there. But because of the way Hitchcock shot it from down below, it always looks way bigger yeah. than it is. But here, in this case, it just it looks like not. this interior does not fit in that in that house. You know, my favorite example of that is the Brady Bunch house. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Because that's actually a one-story house. And they put a window, a fake window on the front of it to make it look like a two-story house. But if you think of the inside versus the outside, they're flipped. Like, right. you walk in and go up the stairs on the left, uh, on the set, but on the outside, the second story is on the... I am always completely discombobulated with that whole set, with that house in the set. I actually have blueprints of that house at home. I'll send you a photo. Really? Yeah. You have blueprints of the Brady Bunch Hanging house. on my wall, yes. Can you tell people about the Paramount Ranch, where the, the exterior of the orphanage was built? You know, what is the Paramount Ranch, for people who don't know? Uh, it was originally a speedway. Uh, there's a racetrack back there. That's actually where we parked on the old like bank oh. bank turn. There's a little uh, bridge you go under to get there. It's off of uh, Cornell, like Mulholland Drive, yes. like way up there. And then it's, I, I think a lot of it burned down recently. Yeah, it did in one of those recent fires. Yeah. yeah I yeah. think the only thing that was still standing was the uh, church. Oh, boy. That was there. I think the whole western town. Wow. Completely Man, gone. That western town probably recently famous for Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Yeah. They set their offices up there and made the whole show up there for however many seasons it went. Yeah. But that's like, oh, boy, man. Um, just Western, hundreds of Westerns, yeah. like dating back to the 40s. Were yeah, it's amazing. There. And <laughs> it's kind of funny. We, um, we had Eddie Murphy's base camp up at the Paramount Ranch by their old train station. And the day after we left, they found about 150 rattlesnakes under... The train station where we were all just hanging out sitting eddie murphy was in there and just like could have been real bad what is it like going out to a location where you know eddie murphy is coming you know like what kinds of protocols are in place and you know we're talking about one of the biggest stars in the world mm -hmm. uh, he has a group of people that have worked with him for a very long time and because i've done four movies i know them very well and they're fantastic they say well we need this done we need that done and it's not it's not egregious. It's not, I mean, he's not asking for, like, bring me a dictaphone and, you know, a melted iceberg. He wants, you know, he just, like, he wants his area to be clean and safe, and that's what we provide. Uh, but when you're scouting, you think about that. Like, for instance, this place, we has a back entrance, and we put fences up. And one thing I do remember about this location is we had a 60-ton AC unit because Eddie Murphy had to be in here in a fat suit, and he was going to be sweating. And if he sweats, the suit... the the prosthetics fall off. So we had to make it like 40 degrees in here so it wouldn't ruin his his costume. But yeah, we kept him comfortable and the crew wore parkas that day. Were you here just for one day? I want to say three days of filming. Maybe it was two days of filming, but we had several days of prep and then strike to put the restaurant back together. There's a uh, playground in the movie mm -hmm. uh, where we see young Norbit and mm -hmm. young Respucia. Mm -hmm. uh, where was that at? Do you remember the basketball court? And two different places. The basketball court was in Burbank, right outside of Warner Brothers, oh. because that day we paired it with work we were doing on the back lot. And the other playground was the boys' camp up in Griffith Park. You talked about the Sand and Gravel Company, the Lattimore mm -hmm. place. Lattimore. So it's actually a cool, you're right, it is a cool location. It's, it's a really, really great location. I point it out to people when I drive by. Hey, that's the construction site from Norbit. <laughs> and generally, what is the reaction? Oh, Dave's talking about Norbit again. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about how your job changes as a location manager when you're filming on a back lot. Oh, yeah. It's um, a whole, whole world of difference. Like the Warner Brothers back lot was my location. And the production supervisor wanted to eliminate me from the budget at that point. But then uh, one of the producers, a guy named John Fox, and he has that last name because of Fox Studios. He's related to that family. His mother is like the seventh wealthiest woman in the world, like that kind of executive producer. Yeah. And John Fox had the same name as somebody who had been blacklisted from Warner Brothers, like somebody stole something, somebody did something to mean that they could not go back on the lot. And because he had the same name, it showed up in the system, like, John Fox, you're not allowed on the lot. And like, whoa, Man, this guy's pulling up in a $500,000 car because he's financing this film. Maybe we, we 
you know, kind of kind of work this out. But when that happened, I solved the problem, and they realized we do need a location manager here. And then I become the guy whenever somebody needs, hey, can you call and get air conditioning out here to put AC and extras holding, or hey, can you, you know, set up? It's it's very simple, and it means I sit in an office and just wait for someone to call me. Whereas on location, I rarely sit down. You know, the the film has this, you know, kind of any town America mm-hmm. feel um, that you get in some of those backlot sets that you're on, you know, Midwest Street and Elm Street. Um, you know, but some of that look, you know, that, especially the look on Elm Street where you kind of have craftsman style houses and, and something like that. I mean, you can find real houses like that mm-hmm. in L.A. You go to South Pasadena, which is often used as, you know, in any town America. Absolutely. Um, why go to a back lot versus going to a location? The simple answer is control. Like, we can do whatever we want. We don't have to worry about late hours. Actually, Universal, you do have to worry about late hours now because the people that live in the neighborhoods around there are upset because they move near Universal Studios and they're making movies there. So you have to, you have to be quiet after 10 p.m. But it just means, you know, we could... We could light it however we want. Right. We don't need to worry about neighbors. We just can do whatever you want, wherever you want. So on the flip side of that, if you have more control on a studio lot, why would you go to a location? Like Clay said, the reviews came back. <laughs> Looks like they filmed it on a back lot. You know, no matter how good the back lots are, they're, they're still, they're a little flat. They're a little off. Like the house is too close. Like uh, at Warner Brothers, the, all the writer's offices... They have a street that used to be their old western town, which is the town from mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles. But now there's these offices, but they make them look like different houses, but they're all right on the sidewalk, and they don't look real. Like, you can get a close-up of somebody standing in front of one, and that's about all they're good for. Was it pretty clear early on that, you know, Midwest Street and Elm Street were going to be the yeah. locations? Yeah. I don't think they ever looked beyond that. I think that was the, the comic book cartoonish look that they wanted. And that's like Clay was saying, yeah, we could paint the houses bright primary colors and make it look like it did. I love Midwest Street. Mm-hmm. It's great. It was also Hazard County for the Dukes of Hazard. It was yeah. built, I think it was built for the Music Man, if I'm not mistaken. I could I be. know they use it. What's a, There's an early film with Ronald Reagan called King's Row or something. And I don't, I don't remember the year of it. And I can't remember if it was built for one or the other. But yeah, The Music Man is a big film to mm. shoot there. I mean, it's in, you know, you see it in Gremlins. Like mm-hmm. you said, The Lost Boys. I mean, it's, Yeah, The it's, Gremlins House is the same house from Growing Pains. Growing Pains, yeah. And East of Eden. Uh, you know, being a, a location fan, being on that street, is there a sense of awe when you're there? Or are you just I, too busy with the logistics of, of one, shooting? One of my favorite things is first thing in the morning walking across that when no one else is there. Yeah. And you just kind of have it to yourself, and you're just like, wow. It's, I'm, I'm constantly in awe of that. And I, it has, it's been, geez, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now, and it's still, it hasn't worn off. I never get tired of walking onto a lot being like, whoa. I love walking on that mm-hmm. street, I got to tell you. You also filmed at one of the Valuze ranches, right, up in Santa Clarita. I think yeah. at the very end that's supposed to be Mexico, Yeah. right? Is that, which one is that? Is that the Melody Ranch? I don't, I get them all that's, confused. That uh, one was Valuze. That's Valuze. Um, yeah, Rene Valuze just passed away oh, recently. Did he? Yeah, that was unfortunate. Can you tell people about the the kind of collection of ranches that are part of the Valuze thing? Yeah, well, there's I mean, actually two up there. There's like an old '50s town. Right. The bigger ranch has like there's a cave set. There's some army barracks. There's a gas station that you see show up quite a bit, like a desert gas station with. Uh, like a Airstream trailer, diner, yes. car thing. And then they have a Middle East set and a Spanish set. Uh, you see it a lot in Arrested Development. Uh, it was used in Iron Man, uh, Three Amigos. There's, you know, it's just... Isn't the Three Amigos? Oh, I man, think, I'll have to go back and watch yeah, that. I think it's uh, El Guape's uh, <laughs> spot. Surprisingly holds up well. Three Amigos really, really holds up. I love the Three Amigos. Yeah, no I, tried, doubt. I tried watching Roxanne. Not too long ago, and mm, no, eh, I love Roxanne. Eh, it was it was a little little hard for me to get through. Really? Well, this is what happened. I won an auction. I bought a suit that was owned by Steve Martin, <laughs> and it was a screen worn suit. And I started watching all the movies to look for it. From what movie? Was it was it? from The Jerk. Really? Yeah. 
It's um, wow. You, you see his pants at one point when he's chasing after when he's part of the traveling circus and chasing after that woman or the woman's chasing after him. It's uh, it's in that scene. You can see the pants. It's really cool. It says Steve Martin in the pocket. It's great. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Are you are you working on anything right now? Uh, right now, I'm waiting for a TV show to start. Cool. Next month, and then uh, it's called American Auto. It's uh, takes place in Michigan. It's uh, from the people that did The Office and Superstore. And then this fall, I'll be working on a show called Minx. And this one's really cool. It takes place in 1971, and it's about the creation of Playgirl magazine. Wow. It's and it's. Um, like female director, female showrunner, female executive producer. It's like you have to get down to me before you find a guy. And it's an incredible show. It's an incredible story. And it's great being around all that female energy because, unfortunately, it's not as common as it should be. David, thank you for joining me here at The Great Wall to talk about Norbit. Thank you so much for having me. I never get tired of talking about Norbit. I'm I'm so glad you actually picked this film. And just the name Norbit. Mm Mm-hmm brings up a response yeah it is it's and that's why i said let's do norbit and you know when i talk to people like that as i get a better and better resume certain movies will drop off of it like the student films disappeared a long time ago and most of my assistant credits have now disappeared um but norbit will always be on there because every time people see it just the word norbit makes people groan or laugh but it absolutely elicits a response that's the staying power of Norbit. And speaking of actually of, of student films, Winnie, the owner, told me that there, a lot of the film schools actually in town have come in here mm. and shot too. A lot of student filmmakers have mm-hmm. used the space, which is super cool, I think. Yeah. You know? Well, it really does lend itself for, well to filming. Um, it's, it's, it's perfect. And like, like I said earlier, there's something like this in towns across America. Like Clay said, this could be in Vegas, this could be in Kalamazoo, this could be in Atlanta. And there's this look. And one thing that Clay didn't say, and this is something that I do when I scout things, if I understand a space in a split second, then it's good for a movie because the audience will understand it too. What do you mean by understanding it? If, like, for instance, the wall that's behind you, as soon as you see that, you know Chinese restaurant. Right. And that, that goes so far with directors and production designers like if they can understand it in a second then the audience will know it as well do you remember anything about any other chinese restaurants that were looked at or considered for this in there orbit? there were a couple because you can't just show one sure. you you know you show them a couple crappy ones and then show them the good one the good like one. oh yeah. but look at this one yeah so it's a little game we play as location managers um but i'm sure there were a couple others but nothing else in la looks like this I I do really want to thank Winnie here at the restaurant for letting us uh, record this episode today. And I would say this is a great location. uh, And, you know, you location professionals that may be listening, you know, if you're looking for a Chinese restaurant location, definitely stop by the Great Wall. She's it's very film friendly here. She's very excited about the prospect of more productions coming in uh, to film. So uh, and if you live in the San Fernando Valley or you happen to be in the area, you know, stop by. It's at uh, 18331 Sherman Way in Reseda. You can find them on their website at thegreatwallreseda.com. Their phone number is 818-996-8900. And actually, we drive by the restaurant on my San Fernando Valley film tour, and almost every time there's somebody on the bus that says they love the food uh, here. So, definitely stop by um make sure to follow us on our social media you can visit our website on locationpodcast.com for all of our details and information on our film tours thanks for listening and joining us on location see you next time standing in a safety zone so many times i stand alone and if you want to get to heaven oh Stay in the safety zone